No one in the field of exercise science has contributed more to our understanding of marathon training and racing than Andy Jones. Professor Jones has worked closely with arguably the two greatest marathoners in world history, Paula Radcliffe, and later, as lead physiologist for the Breaking Two Project, Eliud Kipchoge. He serves as professor of applied physiology at the University of Exeter and has published 350 plus original research and review articles. Earlier this week, I had the privilege of speaking with Professor Jones. He shared his laboratory and practical experiences to help us better understand marathon physiology. His lessons can make all of us stronger marathoners. We open with a background discussion of the science underpinning endurance performance before shifting to how we might apply these concepts for better training and the scalable examples from Radcliffe, Kipchoge, and other legends of the 26.2 mile distance. Here's Andy Jones and mile 143 of Seconds Flat. This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. Andy Jones, welcome. Thank you so much for sharing your time. My pleasure, Travis. Looking forward to it. I'm immensely excited to discuss the physiology of marathon running with you. But to open, tell us about your passion for endurance sport. What led you to this place in your research? Um, I think like a lot of physiologists or sports sports scientists more generally, I think it's often from a personal experience. So, you know, I used to be a a runner myself as a teenager and I got sort of just engrossed in reading, uh, you know, about physiology, about limitations to performance, training theory. I was sort of self-coached. I was interested in, you know, how I could make myself fitter and faster, really. So I just became quite obsessed with, with reading everything that was out there. And then studying sports science at university was the obvious thing for me to go ahead and do. And and that was great. And But again, like a lot of... Uh, you know, people who are successful as a teenager, you, you end up with some injuries and some illnesses and things maybe don't go quite to plan when you move away from home, away from, you know, the thing that made you sort of successful, all of that, um, the support that you had around you and everything that seemed to work that, you know, a lot of people don't adjust very well when they when they go away to university. And I was one of those people. But fortunately, I just, you know, continued the obsession with understanding uh, the science and just got the opportunities to to study more, study harder. And while the running dropped away a little bit, I was able to sort of pick up on the science and retain that sort of fascination. And latterly, and I know we're going to go on to discuss this, started to work with some athletes that were more talented than me and sort of apply some of that knowledge to help them. Yeah, you've worked with some of the absolute legends of the sport, and we will dig into those a little more in a bit. Let's begin our discussion specific to marathoning with the three key parameters in predicting marathon performance as first articulated by uh, Michael Jorner, the VO2 max uh, lactate threshold or fractional utilization of VO2 max and running economy. How do you define and measure each of those? So VO2 max, let's start with that one. That's the one that you know everybody seems to know something about, isn't it? <laughs> um, that's the, the maximal rate at which you can take oxygen from the air that surrounds us and uh, you know take it into your lungs, get it into your bloodstream, and then your, your, uh, your heart uh, delivers that to your skeletal muscles, and your muscles then extract that oxygen and use it to produce energy in the form of ATP. So it's really how much oxygen you can transport and use. Um, mm-hmm. per minute usually per kilogram body mass is a good way to express it so it's the sort of total power of the system in a sense um sticking with with oxygen uptake the other thing then is running economy and that's really how efficiently you're able to use the oxygen that you take in to transport your body mass over a given distance and um typically you know if we run people at exactly the same speed it's quite interesting actually that the, the, there's a huge difference in the amount of oxygen and therefore energy that people take to to run um, and there are biomechanical 
reasons for that and there are some physiological reasons for that as well so it's not just having a high capacity to take in and use the oxygen it's also how efficiently you can use it when you're running at a submaximal speed so that's running economy and then thirdly lactate threshold or fractional utilization you know there's a certain uh, oxygen uptake certain speed above which you have to rely increasingly on anaerobic mechanisms of energy production. So you start to use phosphocreatine stores in your muscles. You'll break down glycogen a bit more rapidly. And a byproduct of that will be lactate and hydrogen ions. So muscles can get a bit more acidic. So once you're above this lactate threshold, um, fatigue occurs a bit more rapidly because you're accumulating metabolites in your muscles and, and you're depleting energy substrates more rapidly. So there's a certain intensity below which things can reach a steady state. Um, and there's a certain fraction of your VO2 max that you'll be able to sustain for, for different distances and different durations. So the idea with the joiner model where you've got VO2 max running economy and fraction of utilization is that you, you put all of those together in an equation and it can theoretically predict the speed you can sustain for a distance such as a marathon. So two points off of that. One, we know from a, a lot of case studies that if you are, for example, high in VO2 max, that might yield a trade-off, say, in economy or vice versa. And two, then I'm, I'm also wondering if those three variables are still agreed upon as the best measures to predict performance. We've used them as benchmarks for decades. And knowing that there's some trade-off within those parameters, uh, do you still consider those to be the three cornerstones as you did your research with the great runners you worked with? Yeah, I, th I think so. They're still very valuable. I think cornerstone is, is a good uh, phrase to use. You can measure all of those things reasonably accurately. Mm -hmm. in the lab and actually increasingly in the field as well and they do provide valuable information on on three sort of important facets of, uh, of endurance performance so so they are valuable I mean I think there's a there's a fourth component to it and I I suspect we'll go on to speak about this as well which is something um, that you might call resilience uh, others call it durability it's the extent to which those numbers might actually change with time there's been this assumption that you know you just need to have good numbers for those three variables on the start line and indeed that is kind of true you know that does predict performance to a pretty big extent um but actually those numbers are dynamic you know if, if i take you off the race course at 25 miles uh, those numbers aren't going to be the same as they were in the first half a mile of that race because we know that in particular things like running economy deteriorate as you become fatigued uh, your biomechanics change, your physiology changes, you recruit different muscle fibers, you start to use fat increasingly instead of carbohydrate, and that costs you more oxygen. So your, you know, your economy is worse, certainly um, at 25 miles than it is in, in the first um, you know, couple of miles of, of a marathon. VO2 max is likely to be lower um, towards the end as well for different reasons. So, so there's, a, there's this um, resilience component as well, which I think we ought to be factoring in uh, to that. And then the other thing that's, that is valuable, though, is critical power or critical speed, as it is for runners. And we can derive that by looking at athletes' best performances over a variety of shorter distances. And essentially what it gives you, again, is is that it kind of takes a lot of those numbers into, into account, you know, the big three into account. Certainly the running economy and the fractional utilization become combined, if you like, in this critical speed concept. And what it defines is, is again, the speed below which you can reach steady states in various facets of muscle metabolism, in pulmonary oxygen uptake, and above which you cannot stabilize those those things. And you'll, you know, even though you're holding the same ostensibly submaximal speed, you're going to drift with time such that you'll eventually hit your VO2 max and will become fatigued pretty soon thereafter. So let's anchor critical speed a bit then, since we've raised that point in the discussion. Using an elite marathoner, can we take VO2 max, critical speed, lactate threshold, and try to anchor those approximately to paces that uh, say like a Kipchoge would run a comparable race pace so that that might translate easier for the audience to understand how these uh, fit into buckets? So to clarify, if VO2 max is approximately 3K pace, where, oh, yeah. might, where might for an elite athlete like uh, Elliot Kipchoge, a critical speed or lactate threshold pace fit in his training? Right. Yeah. So critical speed is probably 
around, this will vary a little bit, um, sort of 92% of VO2 max, 90% of VO2 max, mm -hmm. something like that. So, you know, therefore, when we did a little study that looked at this, if you look at, if you calculate individual athletes, elite athletes, critical speed values, and then you look at the speed that they sustain in a marathon, on average, it's about 96%. So they're just, they kind of know where that critical speed is. And for the marathon, they can operate just below it. Mm. Uh, now, of course, actually in the first few miles, like we were saying earlier, they'll be a bit further below their critical speed. And by the time they get to the finish line, they'll probably be just about on it, you know, because that's that's where you'd want to be. But you don't want to exceed it too too early. But on average, it ends up about 96%. So um, as I said, they intuitively appear to know what that sustainable speed is and can, can operate just below it. Something like the half marathon, um they'd be they'd be right on it and for some portion of the of the race they'd be just above it i would imagine um and you know things like 5k um you'll be above critical speed and just below the you know what you might term the speed at vo2 max although that's a bit of a nebulous concept because there's a range of speeds which would enable you to attain vo2 max provided mm -hmm. you were above critical speed so that's it's, that's that's the kind of thing but yeah, so it's it's sometimes a bit difficult to sort of turn them into speeds, but but basically, you know, you can you can maintain your VO two max for around about eight minutes, so it corresponds to something like the three k pace really mm -hmm. at the top end. So that's a pretty good anchor. But you know, I think the point that you made about the this sort of trade off is is quite important as well. So you can you can attain the same say very fast time for the marathon with different combination of the three joiner numbers. So, you know, you could have a VO2 max of 85 um, and you could have a relatively poor running economy um, and the poor running economy wouldn't matter because you've got such a mm. such a big engine, if you like. And similarly, you could run a very fast marathon with a much lower VO2 max as long as your running economy was extremely good. But there are going to be some limits to that. You know, if, if your VO2 max was only 60, you would have to have impossibly good running economy to be able to achieve a very fast marathon time so so there are some constraints on it um but there's flexibility in those three numbers yeah so while recognizing that those uh, three performance parameters to some degree act in concert and also have constraints is there one you would emphasize in training no i think it, they are hard to isolate i think the, the, the beauty of the joiner model is that the three actually do interact with one another so I don't think it's uh, you can't folk you know they they're all valuable to some extent. What is interesting is that VO2 max is probably the one that's perhaps a little bit less uh, malleable. You know, so mm. you, you you that's quite genetically. It's not to say it's not trainable at all, but that has genetic elements to it for sure. I mean, they all do <laughs> to some. Don't get me wrong, but. You know, a good, I published a case study on Paula Radcliffe, obviously, until recently, the, the world female marathon record holder. And she had a very high VO2 max um, right from the age of 17 or 18. And interestingly, that didn't change over the entire course of her career. But she obviously got a lot fitter physiologically over that, over that 15 year period that I was working with her. Um, and her marathon times got uh, her performances generally and latterly her marathon times got better and better completely because things other than her VO2 max were continuing to improve. Mm. So her VO2 max was basically the same all the way through, but her economy and her lactate threshold of fractional utilization continued to improve year after year after year, just through consistency of training. Mm. So so theref therefore, you know, just to go back to your question, so you, you've got to have a high VO2 max, I think, and you shouldn't neglect it. But the other two, the running economy and the lactate threshold, are really adaptable and as long as you do the right things in training and exactly what those are is is kind of debatable um but the important thing i think is to train really consistently over a long long period and almost automatically and almost irrespective of what you do those things will improve and those together with a relatively unchanged vot max um could explain you know or, or predict very good improvements in performance we're so often pursuing that magic bullet workout when you just touched upon maybe the magic bullet of consistency over time, uh, developing all those variables. You mentioned not neglecting the VO2 max, but it being perhaps the least malleable of these three parameters. So that leads me to the potential ways in which we can 
train it while reducing the risk because uh, particularly with an aging athlete running at speeds like 3k pace might have higher risk for injury associated with them so for example does uh, critical speed training working at say 92% of it potentially replace any of it in practice meaning that it could elicit enough stimulus to train it while mitigating the risks I think it, I think it could do. You raise a really good point. I mean, there just aren't enough um, studies on that. You know, it's quite a hard study to conduct. Mm-hmm. So if we make some certain assumptions that particular training sessions have particular uh, stimulus for each of these physiological variables. But you know, there's a lot of crossover in that. And actually, if you read some of the popular press, you'll get all sorts of weird and wonderful things like, you know, do your long run in order to develop your VO2 max, which, you know, is probably not the most specific thing you could do. But nevertheless, um, depending on what your baseline was, you probably would still get some improvement. You know, what you're trying to improve is is elements of the oxygen transport system, really from cardiac output through to muscle mitochondrial utilization of the oxygen. So, you know, we, we tend to think that the VO2 max is more, more limited by cardiac output. And if you were able to supply more oxygen to your muscles, then they would actually typically be able to use that oxygen because we do have a relatively large muscle oxidative capacity. And that's led us to think that if, you know, the most specific way to train your VO2 max might be to do interval training sessions at close to your VO2 max. So, what you're ha- what's happening there is you're obviously at maximal heart rate, maximal stroke volume, maximal cardiac output. So it's pretty specific. And doing it in terms of intervals mean that rather than just run a straight eight minutes at VOT max pace, you might be able to do you know 15 or 20 minutes as long as you divide the, the work and rest intervals appropriately. So in a set in a sense, um, you could do longer intervals that get you you know. So I think there's some logic in thinking that in order to train your size of your left ventricle, maximize your stroke volume, improve your maximal cardiac output, then training at close to maximal intensities might be valuable. Now, you could do that if you operate just above your critical speed, but for longer intervals and slightly slower speeds. So I think that's what you're getting at Mm -hmm. compared to slightly shorter intervals at somewhat higher speeds. So yeah, there's more one more than one way to skin a cat, as the saying goes. As far as that goes, sure. The athletes that you've worked with, do you um, see them in practice running at their critical speed within training on a regular basis? Yeah, I mean, I think it's what is often called tempo running, and when I say that, right. I don't mean marathon tempo because that's clearly below critical speed. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's really yes, you do you do see it. I think there's lots of people who um, who carry out and, and coaches who prescribe training sessions that you know once per week. Say there might be a session where you do a couple of miles warm up, and then you run briskly, you know, relatively hard for say twenty minutes. You know, bearing in mind that you you can probably sustain your critical speed for a bit bit longer than that. So we're, we're talking about a speed that's not entirely comfortable but is still something that you can sustain and it's really specific to the types of fatigue that you're going to experience in a, in lots of races so you're just outside that comfort zone um, and you don't break it up so it's this kind of continuous pressure um, and it's tough psychologically but i think it does have some some effect physiological effects that are likely to be um, really valuable and of course you can you can break them up into five or ten minute blocks if you prefer um, but but 20 minutes or so um brisk or, or, or tempo run fairly frequently is something that you often see um in, in including in the in the elites and paula was one of those that tended to do relatively high speed steady running she didn't do a lot of jogging around slowly um and and then you know did believe in doing tempo work as well what we find with the kenyans people like elliot is that while they may not specifically do a tempo run it often is included in the long run that they do which is often you know, 30, 35, even 40 kilometers, uh, where they really go through the gears. And they might start at, you know, first mile might be relatively slow, but they soon get into their stride and and it builds and it progresses and it gets quicker until they're probably exceeding um, their critical speed by the very end. So you kind of worked your way up through the the heart rates and through the speeds and, and you're touching on doing some tempo work and 
peri critical speed type running around that time. I'm glad you raised those examples. Let's let's shift to the topic of, as you said, resilience or durability. The parameters we've discussed so far are typically measured on athletes when fresh, but yeah. marathoners might spend only a few minutes or miles in even close to a fresh state. Uh, you've published work testing critical speed in cyclists over long bouts. And what have you found in your research and how that deteriorates over time within a long effort? Yeah. Um, so we we this was actually part of the work that we were doing prior to um, you know Nike's breaking two marathon project. So we wanted to get some insight into into the physiology. We were keen on using critical speed to help. Uh, select the athletes and to determine what might actually happen during the race, understand the, the physiology better. Um, we use cycling. Um, often that happens in physiology labs just because you get a bit more control. Um, it's kind of safer and all of that kind of thing. So we, we asked subjects to do two hours of heavy intensity cycling. So, you know, below critical power, as, as it's power for cycling rather than speed. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still pretty, pretty fatiguing. And what we did is in a fresh condition, we determined their critical power. And then what they did is as soon as they'd done their two hours of heavy intensity cycling, we got them to do another critical power assessment. We used something called a three minute all out test to do that. And um, on average, the critical power was reduced by 8% um, after two hours of what we call heavy intensity cycling. So, So quite a significant reduction. But what was impressive about it, you know, sometimes group means hide a lot of other information and the inter-individual variability was enormous. So I think we had one individual whose critical power only dropped by maybe one or two percent, and another in whom it dropped by twenty-two percent. So this is clearly, you know, a, a fourth variable that can discriminate performance in people because you could have people with exactly the same three numbers on the start line, same VO2 max, same running economies, same lactate threshold. Um, and on paper, you go, well, they're equally capable of running the same time. That's, that would be the prediction from the joiner model. But clearly, if one only you know, deteriorates their critical speed by 1% and the other by 22%, then you can clearly see which one is going to come out on top. Um, so it's absolutely a variable. It doesn't seem to necessarily correlate with any of the other three variables either. It does seem to appear to be independent. That you know is something that as physiologists we need to take more account of, and there will be implications i think for the way that coaches prescribe training and athletes conduct training in the future it seems within the literature literature that is still a bit of a mystery that one percent to 22 percent gap you referenced anything you've seen in your research that might explain those differences over time there, there really isn't yet i think i think there are studies on ongoing that might help address what that is you know you could speculate what it could be and of course the studies we did were in cycling Um, i suspect the effects could be even larger in running where you get more muscle damage for example so you know while it was eight percent in cycling it maybe it's 10 or 12 percent in running i would still expect the inter-individual variability to be there so we don't know what makes some people more resilient than others more fatigue resistant I would bet my bottom dollar that Kipchoge has incredible resilience, though. You know, he's he was certainly good enough on his three joiner numbers to be selected for the project. I'm glad, glad we did that, you know, um, and I can't tell you his numbers, but he, he wasn't head and shoulders above some of the other athletes on on any one of those. Um, when you put them all together, he was clearly a, a contender <laughs> to break to and he's gone on to demonstrate that that was, that was feasible. Um, but whereas others weren't able to um to match the prediction he clearly was and i i suspect that the thing that makes him extra special and i think that made porter radcliffe extra special as well is that they were particularly resilient athletes and actually if you look at kipchoge in the vienna the you know the, the 159 40 performance he looks as fresh as a daisy at the end of that mm-hmm. um similarly when he broke the you know the the official world record in berlin Sprinting across the finish line, his biomechanics don't seem to change one iota from the first mile, um, and it and it just seems very comfortable. So there's something that's allowing him to resist fatigue. Now, whether that's something physiological um, that we could measure but haven't yet, I'm not sure, or whether it's a consequence of the training that he does 
Uh, I'm not sure, but it's probably a combination. But mm. we could speculate on that. Yeah, it's that's so fascinating. You, you touched on my next point: the impact forces in running as compared to cycling, and the associated muscle trauma. Does that lead you to speculate about any training interventions that might be aimed at addressing this late race deterioration of all three key variables within a runner specifically? Really hard to say. Um, I do think the deterioration is mainly on the side of the running economy. So um, one of the things that would change that if, if you have to recruit more type two or fast twitch fibers as you go through the race, they will typically have a higher oxygen cost. Um, so as your type one fibers run out of glycogen and fatigue, you have to recruit additional fibers to maintain the same speed. Now, typically, you know, th those, those fibers that are higher in the recruitment hierarchy and that come in later are less efficient. If you've done something in training or you don't have too many of those fibers in the first place, <laughs> Uh, which is probably the case in these a lot of these people, then as you recruit those fibers, you're not going to lose so much. You ideally also want to be capable of continuing to use glycogen or carbohydrate as your principal energy store, because when you use, um, uh, you know, for this, for, to generate the same amount of ATP, which will allow you to run at the same speed, you would need to consume more oxygen if you're burning fat compared to carbohydrate. So the ability to have, well, I guess not running out of glycogen, so making sure you've got a good glycogen store. Good to be fat adapted, but you don't want to run out of your glycogen at the same point in time. So this, you know, this gets us into things that aren't necessarily related to training as well, because ensuring that you get your nutrition right on the day is going to be important as well, making sure that you're exogenously fueling with appropriate uh, mix of carbohydrates is going to be important. I do think that there may be some damage that occurs and that can change fiber recruitment as well. And likely, you know, if you've got some damage, you're probably trying to repair that damage as you go. That's going to cost you some oxygen as well. Um, if you can prevent that damage, that's good. How you go about that in training, um, I'm not entirely uh, sure. I think the super shoe, the highly cushioned super shoes that are now available probably help to prevent some of the damage that would otherwise occur. Um, you know, the, the flimsy old racing flats, the very, very lightweight, but hardly any cushioning whatsoever have been replaced over the years. But, you know, as you've seen, big stack heights, lots of cushioning. And while we know that if you measure running economy in those shoes compared to a standard shoe, just in a you know six minute treadmill test, you get a lower oxygen cost. I suspect that you get an even bigger reduction in oxygen cost towards the tail end of a marathon where, you know, because you've protected your muscles from the damage that they would otherwise have uh, received. And certainly anecdotally, athletes that are training in the shoe pretty much all the time report that they don't feel so sore, that they recover more rapidly. And so, you know, while we've seen a tumbling of the world records that people put down to the, to the shoe, I'm not sure it's necessarily just the acute effect of the shoe in the race. It's the fact that the athletes are wearing the, these shoes in training. They're able to do more training, faster training, and they get to the start line in better condition as well. So it's all, it's all of that. If you want me to speculate on what types of training might be valuable for resilience, I do think the sort of session that I described where they do you know, a progressive long run, where you're actually running faster as you become progressively more fatigued, that is probably quite important. Um, I think just accruing a reasonably high mileage on a very consistent basis over many, many years is probably another thing that's valuable as well. Um, I think having having the right Achilles tendons, etc., is is important too. Things that are, are good for economy in the first place, possibly also are good for, for resilience. So you're not sort of dissipating your 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 hard fought energy into the environment that you're actually using it to propel yourself from one step to the next. Anecdotally, I have noticed the training in those shoes, particularly on the lo longest and hardest sessions, does seem to have a great impact in the ability to recover from the session and be prepared for the next one. And to that point, do you think the foam in those shoes and the stack in those shoes is actually more significant than the propulsive factor from the carbon fiber plate that uh, people look to that as the source of the race day speed, but perhaps the reduction in fatigue from the foam is as or more significant. 
Yeah, I think so. I think you put the nail on the head there that uh, people have focused in on the carbon plate as being the thing that was like sort of super surprising when these things came on the scene. Um, but I think, and therefore the foam has been a bit overlooked. Um, but I think it's the, the foam is, is pretty special as well. And having that greater cushioning while having some stiffness in the shoe and it's still being incredibly light. You know, I think it's that combination of things. I, I believe, I'm no biomechanist, but I believe there was a study done where they were able to sort of crack or, or break or remove the carbon plate and retain the, the foam. Yeah. And the effects on economy were just as good. So, you know, suggesting that while it's the combination of of the plate and the foam that seem to give the magic, but nobody quite understands why, um, it's it's more the foam than the plate. Yeah, that's interesting. You referenced the long progressive gear changing tempo run that Kipchoge and his training cohort will use. I know that's also very common among Japanese marathoners who may not have the top level elite, but the depth of Japanese marathoning is significant yeah. compared to Europeans and Americans. So we see both of those groups using that run and looking at training specificity and specific economy. Often we put a weight on these long marathon pace tempos that might go up to 30K at marathon pace that uh, a lot of Western elites are doing. But to your point about this 8% degradation beyond the two-hour mark in your lab testing, are those long tempos that never actually reach the amount of time where you saw the greatest deterioration, in fact, less specific than this gear change tempo that only gets to that effort at the latest point in the run? I don't know. I mean, see, I would probably do a bit of both <laughs> just to cover yeah. my base. Because sure. we don't know, we don't know which is. Um, I, I could see some benefits to both. I, I do think there are both physiological and psychological benefits to going faster as you get more and more fatigued. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, you know, sometimes they go up to twenty-five miles in training actually in those long runs, and that's the one session that I know Elliot would never want to miss. For him, that's the key session. Um, but I also think, yeah, slightly shorter but slightly faster throughout, a bit more sustained where you're you're fighting if you like you're trying to retain maintain your form and your oxygen um uptake in the face of that you know so you've started um at a, at a higher speed and you're trying to hold it i think that's good too i think what we're seeing in in norway where they're doing the double threshold day probably gets to the same sort of uh, approach as well so i don't think again there's probably no magic session but some combination of those things Use sparingly, though, as well, just to make sure that you're balancing it out so that you can recover. When, but but specificity, I think, especially for the marathon, is is key. You need to be economical at the speed at which you intend to race. So avoid the one thing I wouldn't do is avoid training at marathon speed. You know, mm-hmm. sure, you're going to do the bulk of it at a slower speed. You're going to do a little bit of it at a higher speed, but don't neglect actually training at that speed for sometimes for fairly prolonged periods because you need to get into that rhythm. There are neurological patterns um, that we need to be really comfortable with, I think. You need to know that that speed feels comfortable, that you could go faster if you needed to. Um, you need to get your biomechanics just clicking along at the speed that you intend to sustain eventually for the 26.2 miles. Psychologically, you know, th- there's a whole lots uh, of stuff, I think, that can be uh, benefited from in practicing that regularly and and whether that is you know doing an 18 miler at that speed or doing some of those miles at the end of a progressive long run or doing a long run where you do chunks of it at marathon speed or whether you just touch your marathon speed repeatedly during shorter steady runs over the course of a track it doesn't probably doesn't matter but some combination of that i think has to be uh, has to be achieved if you're going to cover all the bases that i think are necessary to achieve your best performance perhaps these are all very significant ingredients in baking the cake. And if we remove one, we lose that taste. I've heard you mention that you prioritize doing the minimum volume required for the distance in tandem with the maximum intensity possible. Could you explain that approach and and, and also maybe touch on if that's about diminishing returns of volume for the elites who are well over 100 miles per week? Yeah, um, I've just always believed in in quality, I suppose. And, um, you know, I'm from an era where where junk miles were kind of frowned upon. 
Mm. Um, and I and I do think you know there's lots of different ways by which you could achieve the same performance, and we do need to factor in what people enjoy, what they will adhere to, what they respond to. But you know my my training back, and I used to run for a club called Newport Harriers in South Wales, and the, probably the most we had lots of great athletes. You know to get in, we used to have a twelve stage road relay uh, team where you have twelve runners. Some of them are running five k, some of them are running ten k. But in order to get into our team, you needed to be well under 50 minutes for 10 miles just to have a sniff of it. And we had probably 20 runners who could all run under under 50 minutes for 10 miles at that time. But the athlete that you your listeners will be probably most familiar with is Steve Jones, um, who's no relation of mine, same surname. It's a very common surname in South Wales. But he was a bit of a hero of mine, obviously became the world marathon record holder in the mid-80s, won lots of big city marathons. And... And I was always taken by the way that he trained. And he tended to train, for a marathon runner at least, relatively low mileage. Because he came from a track background, 5K, 10K, cross-country. Very, very good cross-country and 10K runner. And decided that he was, you know, eventually he was at, at the point in his career where he needed to try uh, racing marathons. And he'd been very successful at 10 miles and half marathon. But he was very successful and he used to work as well he was an RAF uh, engineer and so he used to train whenever he got the opportunity lunch times and whatever and he'd have to, have to turn out for the Royal Air Force and run cross countries on, on you know Wednesday evenings and things like that and he would probably only do about 80-85 miles per week and his specific marathon preparation at least in the early days was um, was basically to tack a slightly longer run onto his 10k training Bearing in mind that, you know, he's only racing for a little more than two hours. We're not talking about ultra endurance here. It's still a pretty high intensity endurance sport. And, you know, it, and it was that um, type of training that got him running 2.8 and then 2.07. Mm -hmm. And that was at the time when people like Carlos Lopez, Rob Di Costello and others, uh, Toshiheiko Seiko, a good Japanese runner yeah. of yesteryear, were doing very big mileages, you know, talking 120, 130, 140 plus. And and I think that kind of disrupted Steve a bit because, you know, he ran his 207 off 80 or 90 miles per week. And he didn't, he had this philosophy of no easy miles. So whenever he was running his 80, they were all pretty quick. I wouldn't be surprised if a high fraction of them were at marathon speed, you know, close to five minute mile pace in much of his steady running, plus it, plus interval training sessions and races and that sort of thing. But anyway, he did his 208 world record. He ran 207.13, just missed the world record again because they were swapping them fairly frequently back then. And then I think people started to say to him, Steve, you know, you've, you've run 207 off 85 miles per week. How fast could you go if you were doing 120 miles per week? And he kind of... You know, that kind of affected him a bit, I think. And he started to run more mileage. But if you run more mileage, necessarily, you have to do them a bit slower. It becomes a bit less specific. And his performances, and this is just, you know, a case study, but they started to fall away. 210, 212, 216. And he never never got back. We did do a, two, a, a 2820 in New York. But, he, you know, his fastest races were his early races where he was doing lower mileage but higher quality. So I'm probably... You know, that, that's part of my sort of psyche on this. Um, and I, I do recognize that if you're a full-time athlete, so you're not working and you've got the opportunity to recover, um, then maybe you can do a bit more. And now you've got the shoes as well. You can probably do a little bit more again. But I still don't think you should compromise the quality and the intensity too much. You know, if you start running 140 or 160 miles per week, I think you're training for the wrong event. You'd be great over 30 miles or 40 miles, but you've probably become a little bit, you know, you're, the speeds that you would have to be training at are necessarily much slower than they would otherwise be if you were doing less mileage and you're preparing to race over a longer distance, I think. I mean, Kipchoge does about 120. Uh, I think that's that's absolutely as, as, as much as you would need. Any more than that, and you will get diminishing returns, but I do think you could achieve pretty much the same you know 100 is maybe at the elite level about right you know but i think you could do it at 80 you could do it at 120 anything less than 70 or 80 and you're going to be not getting enough volume in anything more than 120 and i you know i i think you're barking up the wrong tree and actually you you mentioned earlier that you're more likely to get injured doing 
you know, VO2 max type sessions. But I think once you start running 140 miles a week, yeah. you're asking for some trouble there as well. That You know, the impact might be less, but the, the total accumulated loading that you experience is going to be massive. Sure, that makes absolute sense. And uh, I like the range you created there because it does suggest for maybe the age group recreational runner, there is a floor of mileage we probably want to work up to to be able to execute this event. But once we get there, then maintaining the quality is significant. Yeah, that's exactly it. And just to reinforce that, I'm certainly not saying, you know, minimize your mileage. I'm saying, first of all, make sure you're doing the volume that is necessary for the event that you're intending to train for and what your aspirations in that event are. Mm -hmm. But once you've hit that minimum volume, then focus on getting the quality right. Don't think about, you know, don't overshoot on the volume and sacrifice the intensity. That's that's my point. So for me, so I'm in my early 50s now and I'm trying to break a three-hour marathon at some stage. And um, I think for me, it would be, it'd be very difficult to do that with, at less than 40 miles a week. I, I'd be much more comfortable if I could average 50 miles a week for 12 weeks um, and maybe maybe 60. But I think once I, for me, at the level I'm at and the age I'm at, if I go beyond 60, then I'm probably starting to risk, risk things and pro- probably not be quite so specific either. Let's take the Steve Jones example of the icon from your boyhood to the elites that you've worked with today. It appears on its surface, at least knowing Steve Jones training and combined with what you just discussed, uh, his model looks a little more like Paula Radcliffe's perhaps than it does Elliot Kipchoge's, but there's certainly similarities uh, and differences with both. Could you just touch on the biggest points of similarity and difference that you noticed in the world record training between Kipchoge and Radcliffe? Yeah, I mean, I think there are more similarities than differences. So they were running similar total mileage. Uh, Paula used altitude for blocks of time. Elliot's there, obviously, permanently. I think Paula didn't like, um, like Steve, didn't like running easy. And she would actually train as many days in succession, almost as hard as she could until she became really knackered. And I think then rather than go for a slow run, um, which she thought is just not going to actually be of any benefit, she'd rather have a rest day than run really slow and really easy. And I admire that, actually. And it takes a lot of guts to have a rest day rather than just to run anyway. Steve was the same. He didn't like to... You know, to mess about really He'd like to go out and focus on his work and, and get it done the philosophy in kenya is much more i think relaxed um and they do have in the evening sort of social runs where they just chat together uh, you know there's this really nice environment there with a so so some of what they do is a little bit more relaxed but you know i think some, that can often be misinterpreted what they do there because i think journalists go and watch the camp and they, you know they they jog off <laughs> from the camp and it looks like they're going to do the whole thing slowly and they might jog back in but in between times they've probably accelerated to you know a six minute mile pace or faster so they do more faster pace steady running than might initially appear but they're not worried about jogging along at eight minute mile pace for five or six miles of an evening if they've done a hard track session in the morning or they've got a long you know long run to come the next day so yeah um and i think in kenya as well while elliot says he never trains harder than than 80 i think that's probably not not quite the case um, <laughs> but he certainly doesn't leave his best performances on the training track whereas paula and Stephen, you know our, the western philosophy is when you run an interval training session it's pretty much eyeballs out. You finish that, those sessions pretty exhausted. And, and Elliot does seem to leave a little bit in reserve every time he does it. It doesn't mean all of his teammates are quite the same way. They probably struggled. But he's cruised with them. And he, he's, even though he's superior physiologically, he's not running a couple of seconds per lap faster than the big group of people that he's training with. So he is always a little bit in reserve. And, and possibly that's why he's managed, you know, again, touch wood, managed to avoid injury for... Because there's two types of resilience, I suppose. He's resilient within a marathon. But if you can avoid injury and be resilient across a 20-odd year career, then that's going to do you do you a lot of good as well, I think. Because what you don't want is boom and bust where you do, you know, you're able to do two or three months really hard training. Then you get injured or you get ill and you have three weeks off. And then, you, re, you know, it's better just to hold back a little bit and be able to train at 95% of capacity continuously than, than 100 and then zero 
you know so i think there's a lesson to be to be um to be learned there that's well said uh, i've seen the slides you've presented from a portion of paula's training leading into her world record performance we see consistent use of terms like steady and tempo and steady and tempo on back-to-back -back days you raise the point of the Norwegian double threshold model, which has uh, become increasingly popular recently with the rise of the Ingebrigtsens. It feels like perhaps in both cases, the overarching goal is similar and that we're trying to emphasize time in these high end aerobic zones and it's just executed differently. Do you consider that an, an accurate perception of what's happening? And was that Paula's intent with uh, so much running in this kind of 160-ish beats per minute heart rate range? Yeah, I think um, I think high intensity aerobic training is is the key there. I think that's what she certainly did do. Um, I think what's important to recognize is that as long as you're below your lactate threshold, you're you're not going to be hugely fatigued you know so you you could be running quite close to that and still like with paula i don't know if you you know there's, there's uh, her lactate threshold she she was at one millimolar until 18 and a half kilometers per hour so close to five minute mile pace really mm. and so she could run uh you know five minutes and 20 seconds per mile and have a blood lactate concentration of one millimolar so it felt relatively easy. Now, of course, she's got a big flux of oxygen going around her system and she's running relatively quickly, you know, when she's just below her lactate threshold, but it still feels relatively easy. She doesn't have to run a eight, nine minute mile pace, which again is going to be way too far away from the race, the speed she'd want to race at. So, so I think there's, you know, an element that in, in that. I think when Paula was a track runner, you know, she had this reputation for never running easy and always wanting to push bit faster on his steady runs all the time and and there was a bit of an issue with that because of course you do then potentially carry some of your fatigue into your track sessions into your interval training sessions where you want to be hitting maximum quality and i do think that um her ability to conduct uh, you know complete those training those, those interval sessions it's not with the right intensity or quality because she ran them really really hard but she could probably have run them a bit faster if she'd gone a bit easier on some of the other, you know, more continuous running. So when it came to racing, because originally she was 1500 meter runner and then 5k and 10k, and quite often, you know, she ran, she ran very, very fast times at 5k and 10k, 30, 13 on the track, for example, she won some races, but inevitably, more often than not, she'd be out sprinted in world and Olympic championship five and 10k races. And she'd finish fourth or sometime, mm -hmm. you know, uh, heartbreaking and she'd be leading the way and then she'd end up out sprinted and I, and I think that was partly a consequence of the type of training that she did now when she became a marathon runner the type of training that she had always done and continued to do was perfect for the marathon because she had such a high critical speed excellent economy very high lactate threshold which is a consequence of her doing a lot of training up in low, those high quality aerobic zones you know so so it was ideal for that so you've got to again remember what it is you're training for and make sure you've got that balance between easy, steady tempo interval and, you know, and get the right proportion plus the right absolute quantity of each conducted in each uh, microcycle and mesocycle, really. Ah, those are tremendously valuable insights. Yeah. What was the biggest practical application for training or racing that you learned from either Paula or the breaking two athletes, including Elliot? Well, I think, with the break, obviously, with the break in two athletes, we selected three runners. So Elliot was one, uh, Zerzane Tedesse was another, and Lavisa de Sisa um, was the third. And they had relatively, you know, th those were the athletes that had some of the best physiology. We took a bunch of factors into account when we selected those three, but clearly they had to have the right sort of numbers on on the joiner model variables. Um, and we calculated their critical speed and we wanted to, to to feel that they still had potential to get faster. We wanted them to have the right coaching environment. We wanted them to be excited about the opportunity they were being presented with, to believe that it was doable, all of those things, um, and to have a good track record in the sport. But what was interesting was that all three athletes trained in somewhat different ways 
So even though their physiology was relatively similar and their performances were relatively similar, I mean, it turns out that Kipchoge's really kicked on, hasn't he? And he's, he's a long way beyond anybody else, as it turns out. It, it kind of goes back to what, what we were saying. So you had Zerzane Tedesse, who was running relatively low mileage, but very high quality, still training like a 10K athlete. And of course, he was a fantastic 10K athlete. And um, again, until fairly recently, the world half marathon record holder had never quite made it at the marathon and we thought he could um but actually the training that he was doing in retrospect was very 10k orientated lalisa de Cisa, on the other hand in ethiopia was doing huge volumes of relatively low intensity training and really was rarely touching anything approaching the speed that he'd need to sustain in the race itself and then you got elliot in the middle who was doing a mixture of stuff you know so, you know, I think that's an, that's an interesting point that you can get a long way by doing quite disparate types of training, um, but there's still an optimum. Now, exactly what that optimum is will differ for each individual, of course. But on reflection, I think, because you know, what we didn't want to do with these runners really was intervene too much. We didn't want to, they'd already been really successful and we'd selected them and we wanted to see what they were doing and to help where we could but we weren't going to you know take their training out of the hands of their coach that they'd been really successfully working with for such a long period of time um but when we look at it when i look at it now and i, I look at what decisa and tedesse were doing i think they could have learned a bit from one another tedesse needed a bit more volume um decisa needed a bit more quality uh, but they you know so there's a lesson Mm. Did you find any biomechanical parameters that were changeable to improve performance when working with those athletes? Well, unfortunately, what we didn't do was was um, measure biomechanics pre and post. We did do some fairly rudimentary biomechanical measures to characterize them, but we didn't use it uh, for predicting performance at all. But that is in, you know, the biomechanics part of that is in our um, paper in JAP. But that was led by one of my co-authors on that, so I'd need to I'd need to go back and read the paper to answer your question properly. But there was nothing hugely discriminatory amongst any of them, I think. To build on that, anything with Paula? Well, what we didn't again, we didn't do anything with Paula back then. I was just her, her physiologist. What's interesting right. with Paula is that when you look at her run, she doesn't look like she's got a particularly tidy action, especially mm-hmm. later. She tended to kind of grimace and her upper body was a bit tight and it looked almost um, asynchronous. And yet she's probably the most economical runner ever measured. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, there was and actually apart from the shoulders, uh, everything else was actually really pretty fluent if you looked at the way that she ran. So she did, um, you know, I, th- I think you adapt your biomechanics to suit to suit your physiology, to suit, you know, you, you train at certain speeds over such a long period of time, your your body will find some ways to find some shortcuts to minimise your oxygen cost. And that's that's what we see there. So I think um, just because things don't necessarily look perfect doesn't mean that they're not right for that individual. I mean, you look at people like Zatopek back in the day as well, who had a pretty ungainly style. I think there was a study done um, over the, sometime in the last few years where coaches you know, were showing videos of runners running and were asked to determine which of them was the most economical and which was the least economical. And they got it completely wrong. Um, <laughs> so sometimes people who look really, really smooth and you'd assume were really economical aren't necessarily. You know, it's um it, it's it's not about the sort of um the aesthetics of the, the action necessarily. Yeah, that's why I raised uh, Paula as an example. I'm glad you mentioned that. I had hoped you would touch on that because, uh, as you said, it looked like it was fraying over time, yet she was still incredibly economical. Yeah. Uh, many many people know you from your research with uh, beetroot juice and its performance impacts. If you could quickly just give an overview of, of your current understanding of uh, beetroot juice for performance and the best protocols in the hours and days leading up to a key performance. Yeah, so um, the the beetroot juice story, you know, goes on. It was something that I kind of <laughs> happened upon by chance, really. Um, and it's the nitrate in the in the beetroot juice that is important because it gets converted in our bodies first into nitrites, and that's more bioactive, and then ultimately into nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is famous as a vasodilator. So you get a lowering of blood pressure at rest, could potentially direct more blood flow and more oxygen to muscles. We find though that in you know healthy young people, you've got sufficient blood flow anyway, really. 
And what we actually find instead is that you can get a lower oxygen cost of running. So it's a dietary means by which you can improve your running economy. Um, and not everybody responds. If you're less well-trained, you're more likely to respond better than if you're really well-trained. But you get responders and non-responders like you do with any nutritional ergogenic aid. Um, we do find, yeah, so you get a, a bit of a reduction in the oxygen cost. And because VAT max is the same, you know, you put it all into the joiner model and you end up being able to perform a bit better. So then in terms of loading, what you would do is you need to make sure you take sufficient nitrate. Um, and that's around six to eight millimoles, um, about 800 milligrams. So you can get concentrated beetroot juices now that are nitrate rich. That would be one way to do it. You need to take it two to three hours before you intend to race because your body needs to convert it into nitrite and that's not done instantaneously. It takes a little, little bit of time. Um, and your plasma nitrite concentration peaks at about three hour, two to three hours after you've ingested the nitrate in your diet. So um, it certainly it's, it's best to use it acutely, but I wouldn't do it on race day for the first time ever. Make sure you practice with it in advance. Uh, we tend to advocate a sort of belt and braces approach with it, which is that you might want to kind of load up on it for several days before race day as well. So maybe a, a shot of beetroot juice in the morning and evening of say the the Friday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and let's say the race is on the Sunday morning, you get up early and make sure you add your final nitrate dose two to three hours before you're due to, uh, due to start racing. Excellent. Just a few brief questions here to wrap up, Professor Jones. We really appreciate your time. This could be speaking to one of your athletes or maybe another or a coach, but who do you believe has most revolutionized modern marathoning? Well, I think I'll probably say Elliot. Um, in the sense, he's revolutionised it in the sense that he's he's just blown everything out of the water, hasn't he? He's made everybody think about performance in a completely different way. Whether you're an elite athlete already, you're he's just inspirational. But even if you're a, somebody who's never run, I think you can't help but marvel at his achievements, but also his personality as well. I, you know, I think he is the the megastar. He's He's the Usain Bolt, certainly, of, of the marathon. I think he's even bigger than that. And I think his legacy, not just in terms of his achievement, but in the way that he went about his achievements, I think will stand the test of time. So, yeah, I think he's probably gets my vote. The legacy is so great that maybe we could argue Usain Bolt is the Elliot Kipchoge of the 100. <laughs> That's how he's transformed marathon. Well put. Yeah. We've seen dramatic change in marathoning over recent decades with the ascendance of East African athletes. And as you discussed earlier, the transformational shoe technology, what do you see as perhaps the next horizon in the sport? Yeah, I wish I had a crystal ball um, and lots of money to kind of in, invest, but um, I, I, I don't know, really know what it is. I think technology is, you know, technology comes in, in stops and starts, doesn't it? And maybe there'll be a bit of a, a lull now before the next technological innovation happens. Potentially, you know, there's a lot more in-field, you know, monitoring of athletes that, you know, I tend to, people find this surprising because I'm obviously a scientist that I'm not really into. I'm much more intuitive about the way that I train myself and advise other people to train. I don't think you want to be too, you know, in thrall of scientific gadgets. Ultimately, you need to understand your own response to running at different speeds and you need to make you know judgments based upon yourself and the things that are happening around you. And if you're too focused on your heart rate monitor, that's probably not, not to say that that can't be valuable at other points in time. But when it comes to racing, you know, you don't necessarily need all of that stuff and it can be a distraction. And therefore, you need to train without some of that stuff as well on a fair, fair few sessions. Um, I think what we will see happen is a consolidation of elite marathon running it's not going to surprise me if we see a sub two hour performance in a major you know big city marathon it, it may not necessarily be one of the big six it could be somewhere else which seems to have really fast courses at the moment um mm -hmm. and there is there's such a wealth of talent coming through from east africa presently i mean there was a, a relatively young man who ran a 201 50 something quite i've forgotten his name now yeah kelvin kiptum at valencia yeah exactly so it could be someone like valencia it could be someone that we don't know much about but i think we're, we're already seeing more to 203 just seems slow now doesn't it you know people mm. are running 202s 201s 
before long you'll be you'll be seeing athletes run very close to two hours in a major race especially if you can get them all in the same race at the same time maybe it's in valencia or seville or somewhere like that and we'll, we'll see that we'll see it happen because people were, were skeptical and doubtful and the thing that elliot will have made happen you know it's just completely shifted the goalposts um so whereas people were breaking world records by a couple of seconds the fact that he took it has, has taken chunks off it people have had to reset their own sites and um and I think there'll be people in East Africa and hopefully elsewhere in the world that, that have their eye on on breaking two in a what you might call a real race at some point. Yeah, as you answered, I thought that it's a great reminder we're not racing to hit a specific heart rate or a certain critical speed, but we are trying to cover the ground as fast as possible. It's breathtaking to think that 15 years ago, Sammy Wanjiru was running 208 and he was a marvel. <laughs> and today we're looking at possibly people who might be 10 minutes faster in the not too distant future. You yeah. Earlier you, you spoke to your pursuit of a sub three hour marathon at age 50. Your research, your practical work you did with these marathoners, combined with what you uh, said about training with what we enjoy and, and what keeps us coming out How's that shaped your training? What's your favorite session? Well, the the problem I have is that I, <laughs> um, you know, I used to train like Steve Jones did back in uh, back in the eighties when I when I was being relatively successful as a as a teenager, and and it's hard to kind of to, to change the habit of a lifetime. But when you're training, I'm going to be fifty three in a, about ten days time, um, and it's very different being fifty three to being seventeen. And I'm slow to change my approach, but it's obvious, you know, it takes you a lot longer to warm up. Um, you're much more susceptible to injury. What I don't enjoy, I mean, the, the only reason I'm I'm running marathons is because I never ran them when I was younger. So I've got an opportunity to actually set a PB. You know, if I was trying to do 10Ks or half marathons, I've got absolutely no chance. But the trouble with running marathons is they don't really suit me psychologically because I, you know, I'm used to racing shorter distances where you have to be really switched on, where you're working really hard, where you're breathing hard, where you, you know, that kind of stuff. And that's exciting. When you're running a three-hour marathon, I did 301 in Moscow a couple of years ago, most of it is is kind of feels slow. It gets hard, but it feels slow for the majority of the race, first couple of hours. And it's a bit boring. And actually managing your thought processes and not thinking, God, why did I sign? You know, not being bored and kind of feel... Um, question why you even you know that's the th I'd, I'd much rather race hard for half an hour or an hour than to than to do three a three-hour marathon you know doing a two if i you know if i was running a two-hour marathon i might feel differently about it but three hours is a long time to be on your feet so doing those long runs i find pretty hard work i'd much rather do i do most of my training on a treadmill and i enjoy the interval training sessions more you know 20 or 30 by a minute you know the, mm -hmm. just the time ticks by you know you just focus on the rep that you're in You've got your bit to recover and, and just your mind is working and you're doing little sums in your head about what fraction of the session you've done and all. And that kind of keeps me stimulated and motivated. So I enjoy those sessions more than the, you know, two and a half hour um, drudgery runs. <laughs> I think you're using all the same mental tricks as the rest of us to work through those reps. Yeah. yeah. Uh, what are you and your research partners working on right now? Uh, well, a few, a few things, some of which we kind of touched on. I do think this resilience thing is is really interesting. So we've got a study happening at the moment where we're integrating biomechanics and physiology. We're taking muscle biopsies pre and post. Um, we're assessing VO2 max, changes in running economy, all, all of that stuff, thresholds, um, to see to what extent you know resilience is an issue during running compared to cycling. We pretty confident that there are going to be some changes there but what predicts it are there is there anything at baseline is it muscle oxidative enzyme activity is it fiber type is it glycogen um is it baseline running economy what are the what are the things that predict that and what happens to the biomechanics over the course of a fatiguing two-hour run as well so is it the fact that you're fatiguing that then influences your biomechanics to change and simultaneously, there's a change in oxygen uptake. Or does the biomechanics start to change first, and that alters your oxygen uptake, makes you less less efficient? So it's, it's all that interplay, really, between fatigue, biomechanical or technique changes, and oxygen costs. So we're trying to address that and uh, and look at this durability um, concept as well. In time, what I'd like to do is throw some interventions at that, like footwear, like nutrition, 
and so on, see whether that makes any difference. So on the one hand, we've got this resilience line of work that we're still um, that we're pursuing, because I, I think that's the, you know, that fourth dimension, if you like, that that holy grail. And I think the work that we did with um, with Eda Clark has really brought that to the attention um, of researchers and practitioners now that it's not just those big three, that there's this fourth component. And then we're doing the dietary nitrate work as well. We published a nice study recently where we fed people um, nitrate that had a radioactive label to it. So you can you know, take muscle biopsies and blood samples and run it through a mass spec and you can see exactly where the nitrate has got. Um, so you can determine how quickly it gets into muscle. We did this really, you know, the, the study we just published, we were really excited by because you show that within an hour or so of the ingestion of this labeled nitrate, it ends up in your muscle tissue. And the higher your muscle nitrate concentration is, the more force your muscles are able to produce. There's a really neat correlation between that. So, you know, that's exciting. And there are applications and implications there for, for older people, for uh, people with disease conditions and such like. So um, on, the, on the basic science thing, that's another, another angle that we're going to tackle. We look forward to seeing the upcoming research. Uh, we'll certainly link in the show notes the papers that we've discussed here in this hour. Uh, last thing before I let you go, uh, you used a term earlier that was very, I guess we'll say whales of you when you referred to Paula ending a session feeling knackered. So I want to know as an American, the colloquialism from your running culture that I need to start incorporating more frequently in reference to my running. <laughs> well, knackered is a good one, isn't it? Why not it is a, it's a great one. I didn't know <laughs> if there was something else, though, that maybe I don't know about that you like to use. There probably are, but I'm not sure they're uh, they're appropriate in this day of We will stick to knackered then. All right, Professor Andy Jones, uh, thank you so much for your time. This has been fascinating and incredible learning from you for this hour, and we are excited to see what you and your partners research next. So thank you again. It's been a pleasure, Travis. Thanks very much for the for the great questions. It's been a, a quick hour. I very much enjoyed it.